0: Okay, folks, welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Joy, and I'm joined by Yingyi and Cheng, and we both work with Kulabar Capital Investments. Kulabar is a global fixed income manager, and we're responsible for running $7.6 billion in funds under management. We record this podcast once a month, and the purpose of the podcast is to unpack tricky financial market issues of the day. Okay, Yingers, it's the 20th of August and we're back in action to record the next episode of the Complexity Premier Podcast. How are you going? I'm great, thanks, Chris. How are you? Yeah, I'm rock solid, Yingers. So do you want to kick off? Chris, why don't you
1: give us a quick summary of the portfolio drivers in July?
0: Yeah, sure. So basically, we had ongoing mean reversion or normalisation of high-grade financial spreads in July. But in truth, the panoply of alpha levers that we have these days in the portfolios all seem to be humming at the same time. Our listeners might recall that in late 2021, we were super negative on our own asset class, specifically on credit. We expected spreads in late 21 to widen 100 to 150 basis points. We were also super negative on fixed rate bonds or duration. And actually, you know, I can remember our shareholder Pinnacle wanted us to market our long duration strategy, which is called the Kulibar Active Composite Bond Fund. It's also an ETF, trades under the ticker on CHOX F-I-X-D. And since inception, it has been the best performing Aussie long duration strategy that we know of over every interval. That's over six months, one year, three years, five years. And since inception, after all retail fees. So we um, actually said, you know, we weren't comfortable marketing that strategy because we thought that fixed rate bonds would perform poorly. And under the Coolabah active composite bond fund, we deliberately fixed the interest rate duration to equal the composite bond indexes five to six years of duration. So in that strategy, we're passive on fixed rate duration but we're active on the underlying physical bonds, which we trade very intensively. We're actually turning over that portfolio as much as seven to eight times a year and historically have uh, delivered negative transaction costs or positive execution alpha. Anyway, that's a segue on why we were negative duration. We were negative credit. And in all of our portfolios, we basically had our duration at zero years or we were 100% floating rate in late 2021. We had sold most of our credit and actually introduced into our portfolios eight to nine billion dollars worth of physical credit short positions and hedges. We were short selling bank bonds in Aussie dollars, US dollars and euros. And we went short US investment grade credit, European investment grade credit, Aussie investment grade credit and US high yield and European high yield through so-called credit default swap indices. As we now know, spreads blew up. They moved 100 to 150 basis points wider. Fixed rate bonds did indeed get destroyed over the first half of 2022 as the 10-year government bond yield in Australia and the U.S. went from around 1% to 4% by circa June 2022. And at that point, we started liquidating the interest rate hedged government bond positions that we've been hiding in from circa mid-2021 through to mid-2022 and moving aggressively back into newly cheapened bank senior ranking bonds and bank tier 2 bonds in particular in both U.S. dollars and Aussie dollars and indeed also in Euros to a lesser extent. So, Ying is in the month of July, we saw, as I'm sure we'll discuss, later in performance in terms of compression in uh, bank senior ranking bond spreads, but particularly bank T2 bond spreads. We also got really good performance out of the primary or new issue market in Aussie dollars, US dollars and euros, where we were able to find bonds that were paying generous new issue concessions. And we did very well out of our sovereign bond trading. So that's a quick recap of what happened in July at a very, very high level. In
1: so Chris, you mentioned duration earlier. How are you feeling about that now?
0: Yeah, so you know, we were, as I mentioned, uber negative duration late 2021, but as those 10-year yields on risk-free government bonds jumped from 1% to 4% by mid-2022, we started saying to clients that we think it makes sense to average into duration. Obviously, this is not personal financial advice, it's just general information. But at a 4% yield, government bonds, were looking much more attractive. Obviously, one of the open questions is the future path of the monetary policy cycle globally. And one thing that concerns us is that markets have been pricing in pretty aggressive cuts both this year and next year. We've argued that the 100 basis points of cuts for the Fed this year were pretty bogus and very, very unlikely to be realized. And they have indeed been shifted into 2024. But I think, Ying, is what weighs on our mind is that markets aren't really pricing in any possibility of an extension of the hiking cycle, despite the fact that we clearly have very persistent and stubborn services inflation all around the world, services inflation, of course, being demand side inflation. We obviously have very, very tight labor markets globally as well, with unemployment rates sitting in the mid threes to low fours in key developed countries like Australia, New Zealand, the US and the UK. And the history of these tightening cycles tells us they tend to be punctuated by many pauses, followed by subsequent hikes. So in the last big hiking cycle in Australia, between 2002 and 2008, the RBA paused four times and on three occasions paused for more than 12 months only to start hiking again. Now we'll get to this later but we've recently seen in August a big jump in the yields again. Specifically the Aussie and US 10-year government bond yields have been bouncing around 4.3%. So slightly higher than where they got to in mid-2022. And I certainly subscribe to the view that this is a great opportunity to once again start averaging into some reasonable duration or fixed rate bond exposures. Now you guys of the fact that we've been talking about, you know, macro considerations vis-a-vis our portfolios. Do you want to just dive into a bit more detail on some of the tangible portfolio outcomes that investors secured in the month of July?
1: Yeah, of course, Chris. So Koolabar's portfolio performance in July was led by our higher yielding strategies, including the Long Short Credit Fund, which returned 2.2% gross or 1.8% net in the month with an average A-plus credit rating, zero interest rate duration risk and a 7.5% running yield as at the end of July. Now, over the last 12 months, this long short credit fund has returned a solid 11.3% gross or 8.6% net, outperforming key peers of fees since its 2017 inception. This long short credit fund can and does go both long and short government bonds, bank bonds and corporate bonds. And for our listeners who have been tuning in for quite some time, they would have known that we launched a new floating rate high yield fund in December 2022. Uh, That has also performed well in July. It delivered 2.2% growth or 2.1% net with an average A- minus credit rating, zero interest rate duration risk and a strong 8.9% per annum running yield. Since 5th of December 2022, to launch the floating weight high yield fund has actually returned 9.6% gross or 8.9% net on a non-annualised basis, i.e. over the last seven to eight months, outperforming all key peers' net of fees. Staying in the flooding rate space, Kulabar's two cash plus products, the Smarter Money Fund and the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund, had their best months since April 2020, providing gross returns of 1% and 0.9% and net returns of 0.9% and 0.9% respectively in July. Over the last 12 months, the Smarter Money Fund and the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund have returned 5.9% and 5.6% gross respectively or 5% and 4.9% net, respectively, uh, with an average A rating, zero interest rate duration and cash running yields of 5.3% and 5.4% respectively in July. Since inception, these two funds have outperformed key peers' net of fees. In July, interest rate duration stabilised somewhat as five-year government bond yields pull back on weaker inflation data, boosting some fixed rate bond prices. Specifically, Australia's five-year government bond yield declined modestly from 3 3.95% to 3.85% in July. Coolabar's class-leading Active Composite Bond Fund once again generated robust outperformance in July, beating the Oswald Composite Bond Index by 1.2% gross or 0.9% net. More precisely, the Active Composite Bond Fund, which trades under the TriX ticker FIXD, returned 1.7% gross or 1.4% net compared to the Composite Bond Index's 0.5% in July. Since its March 2017 inception the active composite bond fund has outperformed the composite bond index by an average of 1.8% pre-fees or 1.1% net of fees and all known peers. It has done so with very similar volatility to the index a tracking error of around 1.3% per annum, and superior risk-adjusted returns to both the index and peers. But as always, please note that past performance is no guide to future returns, and investors should always read the PDS to better understand product risks. And please listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Spreads generally continue to grind tighter in the first month of the new financial year in US dollars, euros, and Aussie dollars. At the top of the capital stack, five-year major bank senior bond spreads in Aussie dollars contracted ever so slightly from circa 92 basis points to 90 basis points over the bank bill swap rate in July. One notch down, five-year major bank T2 spreads compressed more sharply from 216 basis points to 200 basis points on the back of a reduction in supply juxtaposed against robust institutional and mid-market demand. Finally, the major bank's five-year AT1 hybrid spreads dropped by circa 21 basis points from 292 basis points to 271 basis points, given the supply vacuum. Current hybrid spreads are notably well inside their long-term 325 to 350 basis points average range since the 2013 introduction of the Basel III global banking rules. Once the major banks come out of blackout following their four-year results, it would be reasonable to assume that they, and the regional banks, start issuing into the tight AT1 ASX or OTC hybrid markets to take full advantage of the currently attractive cost of capital. Chris, were there any particular catalysts for spread performance in July?
0: I think there might be um, a few dynamics at play, As One, there's definitely seemingly some secular asset allocation shifts. Many institutional investors are massively overweight. Aussie equities, global equities, venture capital, private equity, commercial real estate equity, infrastructure equity, high yield debt and private credit and have very little cash or real high-grade fixed income. Just look at the future fund. I think less than 20% of their portfolio is in cash and proper high-grade fixed income. So we're certainly seeing signs that institutional investors recognize that with such high risk-free cash and government bond yields, it makes sense to pivot back into high-grade and cash. And we're seeing this in the flows. You know, For example, CBA did a senior deal a week ago in Aussie dollars that attracted a record $7.8 billion of bids. We've heard large, you know, 300 billion super funds like Aussie Super state that they've shifted $40 billion into fixed income and that they're funneling most of their marginal flows into that asset class and avoiding like the plague, it appears, specifically commercial real estate. And I would say most of our clients are expressing a lot of concern about illiquidity, whether that's a liquid commercial property, a liquid high yield bond markets, where spreads are incredibly tight. And And a liquid private credit, where spreads really don't seem to have expanded much compared to what we've seen in investment grade bond markets. And certainly, I think the asset allocation that's appropriate for a world in which you can get government bonds paying 4 to 5%, cash paying 5 to 6%, and bank bonds paying 6 to 7% is quite radically different to the asset allocation that many instos and individuals apply for the period between 2008 and 2022 which was really characterised by deposits paying sub 1%, and everybody was obviously engaged in a desperate search for yield or a reach for risk, which in turn powered the demand for those asset classes like commercial real estate, high-income producing stocks, private debt, and high-yield bonds. I think a a second factor that came into play in July was we have had some better inflation data in the US, specifically core inflation in the US on a three-month annualised basis has dropped down to 3%. Still well above the Fed's 2% target, but obviously a lot better than it had been. And I'd note here, I think six-month annualized core inflation in the US is running about 4.1%. So this has promoted the so-called immaculate disinflation thesis, whereby people are hoping that we can get normalization inflation at the same time as uh, we avoid a big increase in unemployment, given global unemployment rates remain well below estimates of the NAIRU, or NIRU, that's the non accelerated Inflation rate of unemployment. As I mentioned earlier, they're all sitting around three and a half to four percent. But I guess we're skeptical, Yingers, about the risk rally in July and this notion that central banks are done and dusted. With the tightening cycle and we can embrace the idea of big cuts in uh, 2024 for several reasons the first is you know the us is a bit of an anomaly here if we look at three month and six months if we look at three month and six month annualized inflation in europe it's actually running at a, a stonking five and a half percent versus the ecb's two percent target likewise here in australia it's running at 3.6 to 4.3 percent, again miles above the rba's new 2.5 percent target and the big driver of the disinflation in US core, that 3.1% three-month annualised outcome, has been a dramatic drop in goods inflation in the US as supply chains normalize. So goods inflation three-month annualized has fallen from you know, over 14% down to 0.6% in the US. But we're still seeing, I think, super interestingly, very elevated goods inflation elsewhere, specifically three and six-month annualized in Europe is running around 6%. And in Australia, core goods inflation, three and six-month annualized running at about 3%, uh, still a bit above the RBA's 2.5% target. Now, now, internally, we are conscious of the fact that we could get some goods deflation that could continue to pull down the But when we unpack the inflation data and focus on core services inflation globally, what we find is it's still very sticky and stubborn. You know, US core services inflation is running at about 4 to 5%. In Europe, it's sitting at about 5%. And in Australia, it's sitting between, you know, 4 and 6%, depending on whether you look at it on a three-month or six-month annualised basis. So what's driving this strong demand-side services inflation, noting that all the good news is on the supply side or goods inflation? Well, our analysis really shows that it's being powered by uh, unusually high unit labour costs. The unit labour cost sounds like economic jargon. It is economic jargon. It really refers to nominal or actual wage growth, less labour productivity. And when we look at and measure uh, what we call unit wage growth in the US, Europe and Australia, it's running at five to six percent in the US, six to seven percent in Europe, eight percent in Australia and indeed uh, at around seven and a half percent in New Zealand. Now, importantly, uh, unit wages or unit labour costs are a key variable that central banks use to forecast inflation, arguably the key variable. And this is clearly weighing on central bankers around the world who are increasingly referencing uh, highly elevated unit wage growth. The simplest way I think to understand unit wage growth is it's just the wage cost of businesses producing stuff. Now here in Australia, nominal wage growth is not running at a Uh, particularly alarming level currently. Year on year, it's sitting in the high threes, although that's really before the impact of the 8.6% increase in the minimum wage and the 5.75% increase in award wages, which on our numbers will flow through to impact 20 to 30% of all workers. And there's good reason, therefore, to believe that future wage outcomes, which just anecdotally tend to be increasingly linked to our inflation experience, are going to be significantly higher than the numbers that have been recently reported in the high threes. But one of the really big problems is poor labour productivity, uh, which has persisted for a long time. And I think the best way to explain this is it's not as though, you know, Ying as any of us are not working super hard You know, we're wearing supercomputers on our wrists, our phones are supercomputers. We've got the best access to information and insight that we've ever had. Obviously, we're also increasingly seeing artificial intelligence integrated into workplaces to further enhance productivity. But what we do know with the tightest labour markets since the circa 1970s is that businesses are carrying more people to produce a given quantity of products than they have in a very, very long time. If you think about just banks, who are the biggest employers in Australia, if you look at the big four banks, risk departments, legal departments, compliance departments, government affairs departments, ESG departments, diversity departments, and so forth, they've all exploded in size over the last 10 to 20 years. So those businesses are carrying many more people than they have done previously to provide the services that they ordinarily supply. Another case study that's quite, I think, striking is what Elon Musk did with Twitter. You know, he waltzed into that business and sacked 80% of the workforce. And yet Twitter today is producing a same and some would say a superior product. That obviously represents a huge increase in labour productivity in the case of Twitter. And we're hearing that, you know, Musk's decision has really uh, heavily influenced other tech leaders who are also looking to streamline and rationalise their workforces. But until we get major change, you know, we are struggling with a perfect storm of uh, super tight labour markets, the poorest productivity in labour markets that we've seen in decades, incredibly persistent services inflation that's being driven by labour costs, uh, unit wage growth running at the highest level since the 1980s, all of which is likely to conspire to make it hard for central banks to sustainably bring inflation back to their targets anytime soon even the rba is not forecasting it'll get back to its new 2.5 percent target until 2026 so the bottom line is we think this will be an iterative multi-year battle to rest inflation back down to earth. And we think that interest rates are likely to remain structurally high for a a long period of time with the risk that they need to go materially higher than current levels. The one thing that we think is probabilistically less likely is massive cuts in the next 12 months.
1: So Chris, given all of what you've covered thus far, how do you think this tightening cycle will be different to those that we've seen in the past?
0: Yeah, we've done quite a lot of analysis on this, and what we've shown is that you know this cycle is very different for many different reasons. Um, you know, firstly, we've started with the highest core inflation rates that we've ever confronted in the you know, modern inflation targeting period commencing in the nineteen nineties. Secondly, that coincides with uh, us starting with the lowest interest rates that we've ever seen in the inflation targeting regime. Thirdly, we're also kicking off this tightening cycle with the lowest unemployment rates that have been evidenced since the 1970s. And if you then overlay secular weak labour productivity, which is propagating the highest unit wage costs that we've seen in decades, all of this makes for an incredibly tricky policy challenge that means Central banks are really navigating quite uncharted waters. And the unprecedented nature of the challenge, I think, is exacerbated by the fact that we've got these crazy large consumer savings buffers that built up during the pandemic as a result of politicians shutting down cities and literally stopping households from spending money, which then gave rise to record high household savings rates combined with unprecedented fiscal transfers from governments to households and businesses, pummeling recipients with cash, which they saved. They were obviously designed to mitigate the worst effects of the uh, perceived downturn during the pandemic. But of course, these massive consumer savings buffers are just sources of tremendous latent demand and activity and ultimately are highly inflationary as consumers burn through the buffers, which they're now clearly doing around the world. And on our analysis, whilst US households look like they will fully exhaust the excess cash buffers they built up during the pandemic this year, the Aussie cash buffers are amongst the highest in the world. So we estimate that they're worth about 20% of household incomes on an annual basis and that they're very evenly distributed from to rich and young to old. And the Aussie consumer buffers are literally multiples the size of those seen in Europe and the US. And our research suggests that they may not be exhausted until late 2024, which only makes the RBA's task much harder because you know that will just fuel more spending activity demand and higher inflation than would otherwise be the case. And I guess what's worrying is that when you look at estimates of the neutral or normal central bank cash rate, the Fed has historically said that neutral for them is about. and a half to 2.6 percent i think we run nine different models that corroborate that and the feds at 5.25 to 5.5 percent so US monetary policy is clearly very restrictive, although there's a new question mark about that that we'll come back to later. In Europe, they estimate their neutral rate is in the high twos and they're at 4.3%. Canada's at 5%. The British are at 5.25%. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand's at 5.5%. And again, their neutral's in the twos. But here in Australia, the RBA has come out and said that they think actually neutral's around four or high threes. And yet our cash rate's at 4.1%. So bizarrely, we have this situation where Australia. Has as tight a labor market as any other developed economy. Our unemployment rate is as low, if not lower, than those seen in Europe, the UK, the US, New Zealand, and Canada. We have as high, if not higher, services inflation. We have higher goods inflation than they have in the US. Consequently, we have as high, if not higher, core inflation. And we certainly seem to have. The highest unit wage growth, running at about 8% of all our peers. And yet, surprisingly, the RBA is comfortable with having its cash rate at neutral. And this is manifesting in interesting forms. We're seeing the Aussie dollar placed under tremendous pressure, trading down to 64 US cents, which is in turn highly inflationary, pushing up obviously tradables inflation. We have observed a big bounce in house prices that registered their second largest fall in history, peaked a trough nominal decline of 10%. Inflation adjusted Aussie house prices fell by about 15%. But since February, the RBA itself says since they started canvassing the end of the hiking cycle, house prices have consolidated and now bounced quite sharply. It is true, and I think this is really interesting, Ying is that we're seeing a synchronised global bounce in house prices run across all of our peers, including US house prices, UK house prices, New Zealand house prices, Canadian house prices, I think essentially German and Norwegian house prices. Most, if not all of those countries, suffered similar declines in house prices over 21, 22 as the monetary policy cycle kicked off But in early 2023, coincident with the bounce in risk, you know, the, the big increase in equities, crypto and other correlated asset classes, we've also seen a rebound in house prices. And that all suggests to us that perhaps monetary policy is not tight enough because, of course, the neutral cash rate is not an observable. You only really know you're there once you've gone through it and are in demonstrably restricted territory. And to date, we've seen only tepid responses in the real economy to what is otherwise the most aggressive hiking cycle in history. It's not to say that there aren't cracks appearing, we'll talk about that later as well. But our sense, and certainly our central case, is that this will be a multi-year battle. It's already, Ying, has been a multi-year battle. We knew we had an inflation crisis in mid-2021. We're now in mid-2023, and we still have an inflation crisis. On that note, I think one point that's uh, interesting to reflect back on is the fact that our internal economists were presenting formal papers with specific statistical modeling showing in late 2021 that they thought the US Federal Reserve had to lift its cash rate from 0% to somewhere between 5 to 6% and that the RBA had to lift its cash rate from 0% to somewhere between 4 and 5%. And at the time I thought that was pretty extreme, but obviously that's precisely where we've landed.
1: And so Chris, is there any evidence that cracks are beginning to appear in more vulnerable sectors of the economy?
0: Yeah, Ying is for sure. There's no doubt that the riskier dominoes have begun to topple. Insolvencies are spiking around the world. Global corporate defaults are on track to have their worst year since the 2008 crisis. U.S. bankruptcy filings are the highest since 2010. In Australia, insolvencies are already the highest since 2015 or 2016. We've begun to see commercial real estate prices belatedly plummeting as they struggle with risk-free government bonds yielding four to five percent, which is the same yield you get in A-grade office property. And we would expect that commercial real estate in those sectors probably has to fall another 20 to 35% in value in order for it to provide the normal 3 to 5% risk premium or return premium that you would want from commercial property to allocate capital to it above you know, the benchmark 10-year government bond yield, which right now is sitting at about 4.3%. The commercial real estate crisis is in turn creating huge dramas for both real estate investment managers and the finance is that are funding those guys so we've seen multiple commercial property fund managers freeze redemptions here in Australia there's an increasingly long list of managers that are doing that uh, it happened uh, i think 6 months ago or more in the US with one of the biggest in fact the biggest US real estate investment trust freezing redemptions we've talked about that many times on the podcast and argued that it would presage problems here in Australia, which have obviously now come to pass. We've also noted that the likes of Brookfield and Blackstone have been defaulting on REIT bonds in Europe and the US. Every week we're seeing in the Financial Review new reports of pretty extreme local duress residential property developers are dropping like flies. I think a couple of weeks ago we read about the East coast developer crown going into administration. Indeed, when you open up the Aussie insolvency data, it's clear that it's being led by industries like construction and hospitality. In fact, the construction insolvencies we're seeing in Australia right now are the worst since ASIC records began, and we think it'll get a lot worse. And then this is uh, in turn precipitating problems for the non-bank lenders that primarily focus on financing commercial real estate, residential property developers, and the construction space. If you open up private credit portfolios in Australia, if they're willing to show you the individual assets, uh, you'll find that um, I think almost all of it is commercial real estate and resi developer exposures. The interesting thing here is these non-made lenders have marketed themselves for decades to investors as providing finance to borrowers who can't get loans from banks. Yet they don't seem to have asked themselves the question, and by they, I mean both investors and private credit funds, as to why banks want or don't want to lend to these same borrowers, as in why are banks denying finance to these risky borrowers? And there's a pretty simple answer, The regulator APRA has shown consistently over a long period of time that the two sectors that are the biggest bank and non bank killers are commercial real estate and RESI property development exposures. These were the two sectors that almost forced the collapse of ANZ and Westpac in the 1991 recession. You know We saw that these sectors have created problems for groups like the non-bank banks here in the not-too-distant past, and they're clearly creating problems in the non-bank lending space again. You can see it in the data, but you can also hear it in the anecdotes. We're hearing war stories now all the time of private debt funds that have problems with arrears and that are fronting up to clients to advise them of these loans that they're having to write off and therefore write off a certain percentage of their fund. We're hearing of big liquidity issues where funds are getting outflows. And they're not getting repayments on loans as they would expect, and having to extend and pretend those loans. So they're getting a cash flow squeeze. Uh, certain investors are having to create liquidity facilities for private debt funds to get their unit holders' liquidity, but those liquidity facilities lever up the fund and subordinate unit holders. And it's hard to see how this just doesn't get worse because interest rates are going to stay high for a long time. They could go materially higher, and commercial property prices are still in the unlisted market, are way, way too high and probably need to fall 20 to 35% to normalise, uh, given government bonds are paying 4 to 5%. That means more covenant breaches as the loan-to-value ratios are going to go rocking through the roof as the value of these properties plummet. It will likely mean more liquidity because investors won't be allocating to this sector. That in turn means that uh, many of these non-banks won't be able to extend finance or provide new finance to existing borrowers. And similar dynamics are playing out in the sister sector of the global high-yield bond market union, for a year, we've been hearing from global traders that the secondary high yield bond market is very illiquid and spreads haven't properly adjusted. We're hearing the same thing about the private debt market in Australia, that you know, credit spreads haven't adjusted in line with what we've seen in investment grade markets. As I mentioned earlier, there's obviously a lot of illiquidity in the high yield primary market. Our high yield borrowers are just not issuing new bonds because nobody wants to buy them on current spread levels. And if you look at current spread levels, the benchmark for global high yield is really the single B-rated sector in the US and that's currently paying a miserly 3.94% spread above U.S. Treasuries. Now, what's really disturbing is that 3.94% spread is a full 1.45 percentage points below the average spread that we've seen since 1996, which has been 5.39% above Treasuries. And That 3.94% spread is also less than half the average 7.5 to 10% Credit spread that you normally earn on high yield bonds that have a single B rating when there is a spike in U.S. and global defaults, such as we clearly saw in the early 2000s. So, you know, the circa 2002 area during the global financial crisis between 2008 and 2010 in 2011-12, 2015-16, in 2020, and now today. So you know, really bizarrely, high-yield spreads aren't behaving like they normally behave, and that's almost certainly a function of illiquidity. These bonds are just not being properly marked to market because nobody's trading them, so spreads are staying artificially tight. And you, as you see the same thing happening in commercial real estate. These A-grade office properties can trade on yields of only 45 to 5% because none are being sold and nobody has an interest in marking their book down through sales at much lower prices, unless, of course, they're distressed. And you do have covenant breaches and lenders are forcing them to de-risk their books. Now, we are again hearing reports that groups like DEXIS are starting to look at liquidations. So I think inevitably these asset re-ratings are going to come to pass as a function of government bond yields being so high and investors not being willing to allocate new cash. Capital to commercial real estate or the correlated and associated asset classes of high yield and, and private debt simply because the return premiums above cash are so pathetic.
1: Thanks, Chris, for that insight. Now, global bond yields have recently spiked in August. What do you think is driving that?
0: Yeah, Ying is. It's been very interesting. We've seen a, a big increase in yields from their lows this year of around 3.3, 3.4% for 10 year government bonds, which have spiked to 4.3%. In the us and australia and there have been i think several explanations posited you know one is that perhaps the market is getting more accustomed to the idea that rates are going to have to remain high for a long period of time second has been that there's a lot of quantitative investors or trend following so-called ctas that have a momentum trade-on which is resulting in large short positions in government bonds that's pushing yields higher a candidate has been some recent research, in particular two papers published by the New York Federal Reserve, which argued that a more dynamic so called DGSE model of the neutral or normal cash rate in the US implies that it may have increased sharply from about 2.5% to 3.8%. Now, that would mean that Fed policy is not nearly as restrictive as we thought it was, and given the Fed's at 5.25 to 5.5, and that, you know, again, interest rates might have to remain higher for longer. This has been given a little bit of uh, I guess shunt by the fact that New Zealand Central Bank during the week bumped up its own estimate of the neutral long run interest rate by 25 basis points. We've also latterly had those freedom of information disclosures from the RBA showing that their estimate of neutral had increased to 3.8% and there has been some chatter that the RBA is privately saying it might be around 4%. Uh, that is neutral. Finally, we just don't know how to decompose market reactions to the inflation data given on the one hand, we've got this goods disinflation, arguably potentially some goods deflation pulling down US cores, but we've still got elevated goods inflation in Europe and here in Australia, we've had a bounce in energy prices recently. We've still got super strong services inflation and we've got super strong unit wage costs um, and you know, how bond markets are ultimately passing that and what it means for both short and long-term interest rates is clearly very, very complex. I personally think it creates an opportunity to uh, once again build positions in fixed rate bonds or long-term interest rate duration, which historically have been a powerful hedge against uh, recessions and large equity drawdowns. And we have, I think Ying has interestingly seen a bit of a recent risk capitulation on the back of the gradual climb in long term yields. So we've seen equities start to lose some altitude. We were puzzled by the bid and performance of equities uh, in 2023. It didn't seem to make much sense to us. Our view is that US equity should be trading on much, much lower cyclically adjusted PEs of circa 15 times, whereas they're currently trading on cyclically adjusted PEs of 31 times. Our view is also that with US core inflation, six-month annualized at 4%, that also rationalizes much lower PEs than the 31 times uh, PE that's prevailing that imputes sort of core inflation at 2%. And of course, we've seen capitulation just very recently in correlated asset classes like cryptocurrency, so Bitcoin has suddenly plunged from almost 31,000 US down to uh, 25,000 US on the back of reports that I believe SpaceX is uh, prudently selling its uh, worthless uh, cryptocurrency exposures as uh, Tesla has done in the past.
1: Now, Chris, you were recently across the Tasman in New Zealand speaking at a conference Did you learn anything new over there from our neighbours?
0: Yeah, is it was absolutely fascinating spending time in New Zealand. And I learned a lot. They're very, very smart investors, very, I think, composed, wise investors. It's really interesting that they've been far more scarred by the impact of the 87 crash, the 91 recession and the 2008 crisis than Australians have. They seem to be much, much more leery about investing in non-banks, getting exposure to non-bank finance. They have really no appetite for private debt and they really avoid liquids. They place a much higher premium on liquidity. I think that the value of liquidity, the optionality of liquidity has been really underestimated in Australian portfolios, which have got obviously loaded up to the gills with private market exposures. Um, you know, New Zealand investors when I relayed, you know, the fact that it's not uncommon to find wealth groups that will have as much as 30, 40, 60 percent in private markets, uh, they couldn't believe it. They were shocked. You know, New Zealand asset allocation is much more balanced. You know, They seem to have much more conventional 60, 40 portfolios where bond exposures are really high. You know, Fixed income will be as much as 40, 50% of their portfolios. Whereas in Australia, if you look at the big super funds, historically they've had almost no cash and, and high-grade fixed income exposure. I mentioned the future fund. I think they're at 18% now, which would have increased, I guess. But you know, they're just loaded to the gills with things like property, timberland, distressed debt, private debt, private equity. I mean, private equity equity the future funds as big as their uh, public equity exposures and they've got a ton of public equity as well so yeah I thought that was uh, not something I was expecting of course I also learned about the uh, unquestionable and unambiguous uh, supremacy of the All Blacks over the Wallabies and as a parochial Aussie uh, that's been a fairly disheartening experience but yeah I think generally it's also interesting just to watch the evolution of the New Zealand economy they started raising rates in October 2021 The RBNZ has arguably been one of the best central banks in the world in terms of getting onto the front foot. They cut their quantitative easing or money printing and bond buying in 2021, miles ahead of uh, most other central banks and the RBA. They again, lifted rates in October 21. It took us till May 2022 before the RBA started hiking rates. They've actually tapered their balance sheet. So they bought obviously lots of bonds. They've now basically struck a deal to sell those bonds back to the uh, New Zealand Treasury and really presciently agreed before they started buying bonds that they'd get an indemnity over any losses on the bonds they bought from the Treasury, which has insulated them from losses. The RBA didn't do the same thing and they're now facing the specter of you know, vast volumes of losses on their bond holdings, which potentially impedes their policy uh, flexibility. In New Zealand, the RBNZ has been forecasting a pretty serious recession whereas the RBA hasn't. You know, They've just had two quarters of negative GDP growth and the RBNZ is forecasting that New Zealand unemployment, which until very recently, well, actually is basically the same as Aussie unemployment, around 3.5% to 4%. They're forecasting that will go to 5.5%, which is a you know, pretty material downturn, whereas the RBA is only forecasting that our unemployment rate will uh, lift to about 4.5%. So the RBA has, seems to have a much more optimistic and sanguine perspective on their ability to uh, engineer immaculate disinflation. Uh, in New Zealand, they had a bigger run-up in house prices, and they've had bigger drawdowns. Ours fell 10%. Theirs a fall on 14%. But... And their prices, as I mentioned earlier, um, have uh, begun to bounce. I do think it's important to keep an eye on the New Zealand economy because it's uh, undoubtedly leading the Aussie economy somewhat, given the earlier timing of the commencement of their hiking cycle. So Chris, turning to the US, Bidenomics is
1: punching fiscal stimulus into the US at a time when the Fed is tightening super aggressively. How big a deal is this?
0: Yeah, this is, I think, another important dynamic. I'm glad you raised it, Ying, is that throws a massive spanner in the works of monetary policy. I mean, Biden's running a fiscal deficit that is worth about 8% of GDP. I, th- I think it's one of the largest structural deficits on the planet. And so he is uh, running highly inflationary fiscal policy at the same time as the Fed is trying to obviously cool the economy, and fiscal and monetary policy are therefore conflicting. And I think it's interesting to see how this plays out. You know, in one sense, it's a politicized of monetary policy because the fiscal authorities are working directly against it. And I think it only lends further weight to the idea that this is likely to be an iterative multi-year battle to get inflation under control.
1: And Chris, the Chinese economy appears to be teetering given the recent news and data flow. Any thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, I think it's very important for several reasons. We've argued that China's uninvestable for the best part of 10 years. As a non-democratic state, uh, we can't put Chinese bonds in our portfolios, which is quite an unusual ESG criterion that we've developed and arguably pioneered a long, long time ago. Whereas you'll find Chinese bank bonds, Chinese property developers are very common in all the big fixed income portfolios globally, as were Russian government bonds for what it's worth. But um, our long-term hypothesis has been that, you know, China would basically, in a best-case scenario, uh, decouple from the global economy and be threatened with irrelevance as it fades away into a middling power, striking a trading a style set of relationships with other non-democratic states. We've obviously had the recent news that with more than one in five young Chinese workers out of work, the CCP has now forced the statistical agencies to stop reporting this data. Any bad news is now more or less not allowed to be published in China. And some would argue that this threatens the implicit contract the CCP struck with its people that it would vouchsafe in prosperity and power. Prosperity, part of that equation, seems to be atrophying over time. So, this could have lots of interesting consequences, I think, on a geopolitical and economic basis. The first is it arguably raises the risks of President Xi trying to shore up support uh, and solidarity through some sort of extreme geopolitical manoeuvre a la uh, unification with Taiwan. And then secondly, depending on how the Chinese authorities react to this uh, current economic crisis, that could be uh, inflationary or deflationary. And of course, in recent days, we've heard the big dramas surrounding Zhongrong International Trust, which had failed to make interest and in principal payments on um, many of its investment products. And uh, as Jonathan Payne has argued, you know this is important because the trust industry in China is about 2.9 trillion in size, and it's part of China's shadow banking system of non-bank lenders. And Zhongrong's uh, shareholders—I I don't know if I pronounced that correctly—but anyway, are a state-owned enterprise and a private asset management company. And the story. Uh, as pain relates, it has a pretty sinister twist. Not only did Zonggrong investors lose their money, but apparently they also got a visit from the police. And last week, unfortunate Zhongrong investors were told by Chinese police that they were not allowed to issue any protest, complaint, or you know, social media communication about Zonggrong in a public forum. So this kind of really speaks to the point that bad news has been found in China. So
1: Chris... Coming back to Australia, the housing market continues to rebound. What's your latest thinking on this topic?
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. When we um, track the delinquencies in the Aussie home loan market, it really is a tale of two stories. So we have systems that suck data from every securitized home loan portfolio that's been sold by both banks and non-banks. And if we compare all loans written by both banks and non-banks, so all residential mortgage loans, and we analyse their 30 days plus delinquencies, what we find is that non-bank, home loan portfolios are reporting delinquencies that are at about 2.6 times higher than bank issued loans. And crucially, we've seen a big recent spike to historically high levels in non-bank delinquencies. And that's kind of to be expected because you know if you're going to a non-bank, presumably one of the reasons you're doing that is because you can't get finance from a bank. So you're a subprime borrower, uh, which is what non-banks specialize in. A non-bank by definition, if they're lending to borrowers, who can't get money from a bank, is dealing with either a subprime resi borrower, or in the case of private credit, a sub- subprime corporate borrower commercial real estate or resi property developer borrower. But if we then telescope our analysis units into the much higher quality loans that some banks do write, they're called prime loans. And the idea is these prime loans are the same as bank prime loans. And obviously, as opposed to the normal subprime loans that a non-bank might offer, we see a fascinating dynamic emerge, specifically during normal periods when rates are low and money is cheap, defaults are also low. And both non-banks and banks actually report, unsurprisingly, very similar delinquency rates on their prime loans. However, once we compositionally adjust that data to control for the important impact of new issuance of home loans into the market, so when you securitize a home loan portfolio or an RMBS transaction, all the loans are default-free. They're selected to be default-free, and this basically introduces a tremendous bias into the delinquency statistics because non-banks have been much bigger issuers of RMBS than banks. And because you're getting all these non-bank deals that have no defaults in them at issue date, when they go into the default index, the default index can be spuriously pushed down. But we statistically control for this. And what our indices show very clearly is that as soon as adversity hits a non-bank prime home loan portfolio, such as in March 2020 or today, what we find is an enormous increase in delinquencies on the non-bank prime loans that are way above the levels reported by the banks. And this is despite you know, non-banks claiming these borrower cohorts are similar to bank prime borrowers. So right now, for example, our analysis suggests that prime non-bank home loan delinquencies are traveling at about 1.5 times higher than equivalent bank prime delinquencies. So this tells us that non-banks are still applying much looser lending standards relative to regulated banks when trying to win market share from them which obviously makes perfect intuitive sense you know non-bank lenders are always asset gatherers they're unregulated they just want to write as many lines as possible or accumulate as many assets as possible banks on the other hand they've got government guaranteed deposits they've got rba supervision of the payment system they've got massive apra supervision which is incredibly invasive of every aspect of their business model to ensure they're prudent and conservative and so when and we do dd on banks and non-banks and i've been doing dd on non-banks for decades there's always a gaping chasm between the quality of their risk management their credit assessment their servicing standards and their just overall approach to risk how they stress their portfolios. You know, non-banks will often use the 2008 experience when defaults in Australia hardly moved rather than the 91 recession, which the banks will always use. And APRA always uses a kind of stress test that's based on the 91 recession where defaults massively increased. Now, having said that, you know, not all non-banks are bad. You know, we have a lot of admiration and respect in particular for Liberty Financial. They're very, very smart. I really admire those guys and they kind of run themselves like a bank. And certainly we hear solid reports uh, about metrics. And in the private credit market, you know, those guys have 125 staff, Andrew Lockett and his team, you know, they're forces of nature in terms of uh, deal origination, very sophisticated guys, lots of great experience. And I think that they'll probably clean up amongst their peer set. Most private credit funds you see are two men and a dog, you know, a handful of guys just trying to basically send money out the door at the highest possible yields, report those yields, claim that there's no capital volatility, claim it's capital stable. And then of course, they're going to get eventually inevitably smashed by default that force write downs, particularly in the current cycle. So, I think you've got to be discriminating in those spaces, and not everybody is bad, but I think the good guys are absolutely 100% the exception rather than the rule.
1: So, Chris, right now, what are the key takeaways for investors in terms of portfolio construction, asset allocation then?
0: is that's the existential question right the basic unavoidable truth is that with cash rates at four to five percent if not higher that's you know central bank cash rates government bond yields at four to five percent with bank deposits paying five to six percent and with bank bonds paying six to seven percent the fact is that the asset allocation that investors embrace between 2008 and 2022 should be radically different to the asset allocation that they're applying today because the 2008 to 2022 period was all about cash paying nothing and embarking on this huge reach for risk or search for yield and loading up on resi property, commercial property, private debt, high yield crypto equities that pay high yields. But we no longer have that search for yield because the risk-free rate is paying massive yield. And then near risk-free products like uh, cash deposits and highly rated and liquid bank bonds are also paying incredibly attractive interest rates, which is a game changer for the valuation of all asset classes. You know, the 10-year government bond yield yield is at 4.3% today. That is the discount rate in every single discounted cash flow model used to value every company on the planet, whether it's a listed stock or a private company. It's the DCF model that they use to value commercial real estate. And it's the hurdle rate for everything. And as that hurdle rate goes up, asset prices must go down, which is why we're seeing equities waiver, crypto plummet. You know, we're seeing ongoing re ratings in commercial real estate and other associated asset classes. I think the key to understand is that investors should absolutely place a massive premium right now on liquidity, which gives you optionality. At some point, some of these ailing asset classes may become attractive again, and you want to pounce like a panther. And you need liquidity to be able to do that. But the beautiful thing today is liquidity doesn't come at a cost. Liquidity comes in cash and high-grade bonds with really attractive interest rates that are above the rate of inflation. So I think that's particularly positive. You know, I can't give personal financial advice to anyone. But what I can say is if I look at a fixed income portfolio today for myself, I would probably be 25% allocated to our fixed rate duration strategy, our active composite bond strategy, I'd be 25% allocated to our floating rate cash-enhanced strategy, smart money, higher income. And then I probably have 50% of our portfolio split, split between our floating rate high-yield fund and our floating rate long short credit fund. So the thing I'm focused on is, well, when do I increase that duration allocation from, say, 25 to 50%? For my personal portfolio, it's probably when I'm convinced that US wage costs and particularly unit labor costs have capitulated. To see that happen, we're going to have to see a material increase in unemployment. And that should help pull services inflation back down to earth. And then, Ultimately, give us confidence that core inflation will be sustainably low. And then at that point, I'd probably want to lift my fixed rate allocation to 50%. And if I got really convinced there was going to be a big recession and steep rate cuts, then you might want to bump it up to, say, 75%. But that's just for my personal portfolio, not for anyone else's portfolio.
1: Chris, a final question what are your favourite sectors of the fixed income market right now?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I guess when we traverse the global financial market, we do like very high grade financial senior bonds like UBS senior is very attractive right now. We still own a lot of UBS senior bonds. Readers might remember that we were short selling credits with senior bonds last year in 2022. And my credit analyst had a blanket ban on any long exposures to Credit Suisse in May 2021. And I'd actually written to one of Australia's, in fact, Australia's wealthiest man and said to him in February 2021, he'd uh, transferred a billion dollars to Credit Suisse's private bank. I suggested that he reconsider that. I think on five different occasions, I communicated to that effect in early 21. And obviously, you know, Credit Suisse was eventually shotgun sold to UBS. But UBS picked Credit Suisse up for a massive discount to fair value. I think on our estimates, they bought it for about 36 billion Swiss Francs cheap of fair value. And I think they've more or less acknowledged that uh, since. Uh, they were obviously offered 150 billion Swiss francs of more or less free loans from the Swiss central bank. They've been offered 9 billion Swiss franc worth of uh, loss indemnities over Credit Suisse they've taken out their number one competitor they're basically a rogue gold government guaranteed monopolist now in Switzerland it doesn't look like they'll be selling the retail bank and their bonds their senior bonds still look really cheap to you know peers like HSBC and BMP so yeah we like high-grade financials um, both in US dollars and in Euros we like too big to fail banks that are explicitly or implicitly government guaranteed where you don't really have much in the way of default risks uh, we in particular like their senior bonds, and we don't mind the Aussie uh, major bank senior bonds, which we've uh, been fairly acquisitive in for about 12 months now. And of course, you know, we've been very constructive on bank tier two. Aussie bank tier two has looked pretty cheap globally, particularly in US dollars and euros, and also cheap in Aussie dollars. Uh, we have seen a lot of performance in that market, but spreads are still in Aussie dollars a touch wider than their average levels, and they're certainly miles wider where they got to in 2021. And we know there's a lot of supply coming. So, you know, the four major will probably need to issue somewhere between 15 and 20 billion a year until January 2026 to hit APRA's T2 target, which is 6.5% of their risk weighted assets. And then the four majors also need to issue probably about 120 to 140 billion a year in senior bonds. And then of course, you've got regional players like you know, Bendigo, BOQ, Macquarie, Suncorp, et all. I need to do additional senior and tier two on top of this. So I think the supply pipeline will be promising and that should keep spreads well offered and yields relatively attractive. In the hybrid market, spreads have really got to very tight levels. A few weeks ago, we saw them down at 235 over bank bills. Typically, five-year major bank hybrid spreads are to trading to on average through the cycle, 320 to 350 over bank bills. And they're typically paying you two times tier two spreads and more recently we've seen like multiple of hybrids over t2 drop to about one to one and a half times t2 spreads so we haven't been uh, so enamored with the hybrid market I think we'll get some attractively priced supply that comes to market fortuitously Spreads have started to move wider again on the ASX. So we've seen five-year major bank hybrid spreads move from the mid-230s to around the 260, 270 area, and they probably have some more wood to chop in terms of further spread widening. So I think that sector has gone from being a little bit unappealing to more attractive, and hopefully we get some more priced new issues that will be induced with uh, decent new issue concessions. Anyway, Yingus, I think that wraps it up. Thank you to everyone for listening. We really appreciate your time. It's a great privilege to be able to engage You guys, thank you to any investors who are listening. We appreciate your support, and uh, everyone knows you can reach out to us at info at callbackcapital.com anytime for questions, comments, or information. Thanks.
1: This podcast does not provide financial advice, it is not an invitation to invest in any financial product, and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.